You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everyone, back again for another dose of Solidarity Breakfast during the COVID-19 stay at home. A news roundup first to set the tone. Some industries are still personing the pumps, and of course that's health workers and ASU members in particular, and cleaners and carers and rubbish collectors. Members of the construction plumbers and ETU unions are still working with staggered start times, lunch breaks, and an increase in hygiene regimes within more peggies being employed. Their concern is that if work stops, many jobs won't restart. They've got their uh, 10-day shutdown starting uh, over Easter. So that's an interesting time for them. With COVID-19, some of the murkier sides of capitalism have been thrust into the limelight. Even though the government keeps saying we're all in this together... In fact, collective action is the only way to deal with a pandemic. The politics of big business, greed, continues with little consultation with workers and their organisations. First up, despite the JobKeeper allowance being hailed as a result of pressure from the ACTU and workers, the decision to tie the wages package for laid-off workers to employers, like a master-servant throwback, a mindset that pervades the federal government, believing that it is business that holds the community together when, in fact, society is a much bigger, deeper organism than products and consumerism. It is pretty clear the government's own mechanism through Centrelink has been starved and they believe handing the administration to small and big business payroll will outsource the task. Then, of course, is the idea that people can now access $10,000 of their superannuation, which then will reduce their money in old age, an issue now that old age pensions are being called a handout by the seed government. But they say it it as if they're doing everyone a favour. On the issue of the rebranded New Start, now the Job Seeker Allowance, apparently two no-strings-attached payments, the first around $720, are supposed to arrive in people's accounts. I know that some people haven't received the first, so it will be important to see if they eventuate. Second up is being played out for people still in work. Workers at a Coles warehouse in Laverton stopped work. I rate that the company had not provided hand sanitizers or uh, personal protective equipment, despite the rhetoric that everything is under control with our supply chains. That people in boardrooms were showing the same contempt for workers is a surprise, since we are all in it together, apparently. 
viruses don't discriminate. Talking about supply chains, one of the most compelling pieces of news has come out of the MUA this week, the Maritime Union of Australia. In Melbourne, wharfies were stood down after refusing to unload a ship in breach of 14-day quarantine. This was at DP World. While in Darwin, it has reported three container ships that departed from foreign ports in recent days and were due to dock in Darwin this week, despite failing to undertake the 14-day coronavirus quarantine period and they say posing a clear health risk to workers and the community. There's the Singapore-flagged Koita Harum, which departed Hong Kong on March the 25th and was expected to dock in Darwin on April the 3rd, That's uh, and uh, after only just eight days at sea. The Cyprus-flagged Antung is also due to arrive on Friday, they arrived yesterday after visiting Indonesia on March the 28th and East Timor on April the 1st. The Liberian-flagged ANL Dili trader departed Singapore on March the 25th and is due today. The MUA are taking this very seriously. They say if there is a COVID-19 outbreak on the waterfront, it could have devastating impacts not only to the health of workers but on the supply chains that provide 98% of Australia's imports. 98% of Australia's imports, including medical supplies, food and household goods. Employers are using emergency laws to say it's okay and recent changes to the health department directives are saying it's okay as long as you use PPE, protective equipment, personal protective equipment. Another aspect of the usually shadowy world of big business has been the cruise ship industry. Get a load of this. The Maritime Union of Australia is urging the federal government to urgently repatriate all crew members on board foreign cruise ships other than those directly responsible for maritime operations to address the growing humanitarian crisis. With reports that up to 11,000 foreign workers remain on board 11 foreign cruise ships in Australian waters, the union said it was alarmed but unsurprised by the ongoing failure of the industry to help workers return to their home countries. MUA National Secretary and International Transport Workers Federation President Patty Crumlin said the current crisis was the direct result of an international cruise ship industry built on the exploitation of international workers with vessels registered in tax havens, sailing under flags of convenience and utilising secretive ownership structures. The crew of these ships must be tested for COVID-19 and the ships sterilised under the highest Australian standards, with crew members then allowed to disembark through Australian ports and flown back to their home countries at the expense of their employers, he said. To finish off, AIM is reporting that a group of eminent judges are sponsoring a petition calling for a multi-partisan parliamentary oversight committee while parliament has been closed down. The petition is headed COVID-19, a threat to our democracy. Well, you know, in Hungary, the president now dictator, has not just closed parliament but called martial law. And in Myanmar, Burma, uh, Cambodia, Philippines and India, they shut down the internet because... not sure why. 
I'm sitting in the little bar in Bryan's Hotel, the little pub on Collins Street, the one we know so well. Brian says he hasn't seen you here in quite some time, but it's no skin off his nose if I hang around a while. I'm probably a fool in thinking I would find you here. Last time Brian says we put on quite a show. But stale beer and disinfectant, and a passing trambo's clang, make that seem like only days ago. I don't know what to make of us. I still don't understand why we could never be. But I thank you for the time we had, and I wish you love and all. Hope you'll do the same if you ever think of me. You're not in the phone book now. Perhaps you're Mrs. So and So, living well in Tuscany or France. Now I know it's not my business, and that we could never be. But I wondered how you were again, and I thought I'd take this chance. Ryan's closing up now; he wants to beat the rush. Winter's light is fading, and the wind's an awful blast. I only come to look for you if I make it into town. Probably this time will be my last. Now I don't know what to make of us. I still don't understand why we could never be. But I thank you for the time we had, and wish you love and all. Hope you'll do the same if you ever think of me. I'll never see the bar again in Brian Smith's hotel, the little pub on Collins Street. The one we knew so well, but my journey wasn't wasted. Now at last I know what we had was all too long ago. I don't know what to make of us. I still don't understand why we could never be. But I thank you for the time we had, and I wish you love and all. I hope you'll do the same if you ever think of me. 
Yeah, I hope you'll do the same If you ever think of me You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. If you thought getting your voice out there has been a casualty of the COVID-19 virus, then you might be heartened by the day-long online picket run by Victorian Trades Hall last Tuesday. Thousands of people took part, expressing their concerns and solidarity. Also, last week in Sydney, the May the 1st movement joined with the MUA to run a car convoy demonstration making a noise about standing down 180 ferry workers by the private operators. I spoke to Robert Carr from May the 1st movement about the group and their action. Can you tell me about what the May the 1st movement is? Yeah, sure. So it was inspired by Paul McAlee, who's the Sydney Maritime Union of Australia branch secretary. So what it is at the moment, it's a coalition of the Maritime Union of Australia Sydney branch, the Construction, Forestry, Maritime and Energy Union, New South Wales branch, the Plumbers, New South Wales, the um, Electrical Trade Union, New South Wales. Most importantly, we're um, in coalition with the School Strike for Climate. And that's a really unique position because the school kids currently are embarrassing unions on um, taking actual striking and militant action. So the three slogans we've organised around has been social justice, workers' rights um, and climate action. We're doing a huge change in the way we organise, how we deal with union issues. It's very creative, it's constructive, it's um, new and exciting as well. So in terms of organisation, we're really organising not from the perspective of just one person that's involved, but from the perspective of what I would call the multiple. We are very diverse, like we have a lot of groups involved. I'm really, really proud of that. So we have people from the Labour Party involved, Solidarity the Communist Party of Australia, the New South Wales Greens, School Strike for Climate, and all the others I've just mentioned, and Socialist Alliance on top of that. Basically, what we have in the modern individualist world in terms of unionism is that you find that everybody tends to retreat into their shell a little bit. And what we found in our actions at all is that if we actually come together and organise in kind of what you could call a united front, we can say is changing the rules in terms of the union laws and how they still are organising. Is that really necessary or do we actually already have what we need to do? So in regards to organisation, would you like me to talk about what we did with the um, the recent MUA and NRMA dispute? Yeah, I would really be interested in that, especially in, the, in respect to COVID-19 virus and this idea that's going around that we're all in it together, except that it's not dealing with the power issues that we already had. What happened with the COVID-19 action with the Maritime Union of Australia? So five people basically gathered in a room at the Sydney MUA office. You could call them the organising committee of May 1 movement. So that's uh, off the top of my head. That would be Lee Rianen from the Greens, Adam Adelpaul from Solidarity, Pedro Gibson, also from Solidarity and Workers for Climate Action. You have Paul McAleer, of course, and you have Shane Rosard, who's the Sydney um, MUA organiser. And what we did is that, okay, we want to do a day of action around the COVID-19 response because what we're seeing is that um, employers, the government, they're definitely putting profit before the health of workers and they're not really bailing out the workers at all. So what we're actually seeing is that we have a lot of casuals getting laid off and that type of thing. So the Maritime Union of Australia, they had a dispute brewing with NRMA and um, Sealink, who are both private ferry operators. Many people don't know (laughs) 
the NRMA is in the business of private ferries, but um, now you do know. So they recently used the COVID-19 pandemic basically as an excuse to sack 180 of their ferry workers and put more of them at risk. So we had this very general idea of a car convoy that's like a very responsible way of protesting during a pandemic. So the idea was we would get a group of 10, 15 cars together. We would go around and maybe, let's say, um, we are thinking about Coles and Woolies at the time because they weren't providing hand sanitizer. They weren't cleaning all their instruments and so on and doing a protest based on that. So you go around, you beep a bit, you have a couple of speeches and then you basically go home. But what we actually saw is that Maritime Union of Australia, Shane Reside, basically came to me because I was put in charge of organising the car convoy for May 1 movement. And he's like, hey, we've had 180 ferry workers back. Would you like to basically join forces with the Maritime Union of Australia? You've got like 15 people coming. I can get another 20, 25 people coming and we can go from there. And what we saw is that we had this really unique position where we made all the major news outlets. So SBS, ABC, um, 9 News, 10 News, I believe as well, where you had this convergence of students. So from organisations such as Solidarity, general left-wing groups, and you had a lot of people come from other political parties and other unions as well, all coming together to fight this mass layoff um, that was inspired by COVID-19. And it was done in a way that respected social distancing, so everybody stayed in their cars. A lot of people didn't want to get out of their cars, so we decorated the cars for them. When they came out, they were 1.5 metres away from each other. So there's no issues there with breaking any rules. And we had an absolutely fantastic reception. And it just goes to show that there, there are ways to protest. You just have to be imaginative and you have to be creative as well. And um, from here, we're now talking with the United Workers Union and the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. And we're talking about a joint action. on a. But um, there are two main things we want to organise, and that's around the $750 weekly universal basic income that Tim Kennedy, the National Secretary of the United Workers Union, wants to push in this car convoy. And the other one for the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union from Coles is that they're not actually respecting social distancing and not actually cleaning things properly in their stores. And this is a story that's told by the workers, not something you hear in the media. So you probably definitely know that you want to trust the workers and that they are telling the truth because at the end of the day, they are the people that are being put at risk because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So in terms of organisation, we are definitely on the front foot in that. The main challenge is basically to get around all the rules that are currently in place. The uh, COVID-19 and the uh, various uh, packages that are being put forward by the Prime Minister, and also I've been noticing that some of the uh, states are actually using it as a method of furthering their environmental destruction process. In Tasmania, apparently, Mm. they're doing some... It's been called napalming of forestry areas while this is going on. This is what coming out of the Bob Brown Foundation, which just shocks me deeply. The idea that you can come up with methods of actually pushing back is really important. Yeah, definitely. And um, this just goes to show that the true strength of May 1 movement is that we have those conversations of solidarity with people we've never met and people from very diverse groups. For example, the greatest example I can give is basically from 20 seconds ago. I had basically no idea of what you were just talking about in terms of the state using it to napalm the environment. And that's something the movement can take up with school strike for climate and we can organise protests that way as well. So basically in terms of protesting, we've been 
going around and we'd be getting a fantastic reception. And we find the more we talk to people, the more issues that we actually have to push for the government to actually do something about it. And the issue with the current laws around social distancing and so on at the moment is that it's a really great way to stifle this type of action. And that's something we really have to get around and really have to pull together through this crisis. And of course, it has to be in a way that's very responsible. Also, there's this ongoing coverage of uh, COVID-19, which is important. But of course, everything else is going on at the same time. Everybody is at home or, you know, being distant from each other. But people Mm. who have other agendas are in a position to further those agendas without anybody even being aware of it. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, I'm not sure who exactly said it. It may have been Margaret Thatcher or some other neoliberal um, political figure from the past. But they always used to say, um, in times of crisis, never let it go to waste. (laughs) So what we're going to see, we are going to see basically the service stripping of um, our right to strike, our, um, our right to protest for workers' rights and against the environment as well. And really, with the current government, Um, Everybody knows you you don't have to be politically educated out there. In fact, it's people that are less politically educated that are also reaching out to us. And they're they're also just being like, we know we can't rely on the current political parties to do anything. They're effectively hamstrung. Like the only thing that will get us through this is actual people power and um, people coming out in a way that's responsible and in a way that um, accords with the current health guidelines as well. Um, just in regards to the current health guidelines as well, because I think this is a very important point, is that we've been told that there's, um, there's new fines and potential jail time, basically, for people meeting in groups that are more than two people, right? Um, well, you see, the government hasn't done anything in terms of um, stopping people going to work and going on highways where there are basically 50 people jammed up. Um, on the M5 this morning, a close mate of mine was on the M5 this morning in Sydney, and he's basically in a traffic jam of 200 people. And um, we were just talking about the next car convoy and how apparently it may be illegal and it may not a um, it may not be compliant with the current rules. But yeah, like, can we not see the contradiction here, <laughs> where you are allowed to take that action if you're going to work, but if it comes um, if it comes to protesting, it's just basically not allowed. It's put in a scrap heap. I'll tell you something for free. I was I lived down by the sea and uh, I went on a bike ride to uh, get myself, uh, a, you know, just to do a bit of exercise. And uh, I saw four police, two of them leaning against their car, and two and them and the other them talking to each other. Definitely not um, separated <laughs> at social distancing, but they were there to ensure that people didn't stop on the beach. I just thought that was. A, a definite contradiction. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I've had special... a very great contradiction yeah, recently. They must yeah. have special yeah, genes, um, you know, that they don't yeah, get um, So yeah, this is my favourite story on the current contradictions of COVID-19 health crisis, is that um, at the recent MUA rally, so we had about 40 cars outside the NRMA office, all honking and screaming and um, everybody distancing each other. Um, but we were basically in a no-stopping zone. So we were parked there. And it was, like, illegal, right? Um, but what I found very, very telling is that, um, from what I've heard, nobody's actually received the fine yet. It's only been two or three people. 
And they were the people that are actually parking us in. So that they knew they were going to get a fine from the police for that, basically. And, and the MUA knew it as well. Um, but what I found really interesting is that before the action, I went to scout out the NRMA office at 9.30am. And the action started about 11.30am, um, um, midday, basically. And um, I accidentally stopped in um, <laughs> the NRMA. They have like an electric car, like little parking station. Mm. And I stopped there for five minutes to get a coffee, just by accident. There were plenty of other parks around. I, I Just by complete accident, I stopped there. And um, I wasn't aware that you could get fined for that. And um, the local ranger, like when I came back to the car from getting my coffee, went up to the car. He was looking at me. He's just like, oh, you, you can't stop there. I'm going to have to fine you. And um, I just smiled at him. And I'm just like, you don't want to be here at midday. And he's like, why? And I'm like, you'll, you'll find out. <laughs> And um, I saw this bloke at midday. Basically, his um, his jaw was so dropped at about forty five cars parked illegally, basically in the same spot where I parked accidentally illegally. And um, to to my knowledge, about forty one of those cars have not got one fine yet because it's just basically too big to do. Um, well, I'm definitely going to get a fine for <laughs> just accidentally parking in the electric car spot. <laughs> and um, to add insult to injury, this um, this bloke was parked in a no-stopping zone himself. Yeah. Do you want people to uh, make contact with you? Is that yeah, yeah, for sure. You can contact us on our Facebook page. Yeah, basically, yes. Feel free to come out and contact me or Paul because um, our greatest strength is in the multiplicity that's around us. I mean, that, that's the real lesson, I think, of COVID-19 is that we can stage successful protests. We just have to use what we already have. And we tend to forget, forget that, especially when we're socially distanced from each other. And beyond COVID-19, we want to take it further. So we're building advocacy now and we want to deep organise, basically, later. We want to establish the leaders from each particular um, union, political affiliated group, that type of thing, and really use that for greater May 1 mobilisation. That was Robert Carr from the May the 1st movement in Sydney. May the 1st movement in conjunction with the MUA, the UMU and RAFU are currently organising a car convoy for next Thursday. This will also take place in Melbourne with the UMU, the United Workers' Union, as the main agitators in Melbourne. You can get information from their Facebook page. You're back with Annie on our second remotely tailored Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, covering issues during COVID-19 stay-at-home. We're going now to Canberra. I spoke to Peter Curtis, sub-branch secretary of his school's Australian Education Union, about his motion to close the school. The motion started with the AEU ACT branch executive noting with alarm that the Prime Minister's remarks that the Australian community should be subject to even stricter lockdown measures while schools are effectively business as usual for the children of essential workers, whom he defines as, in inverted commas, someone who has a job, close, inverted commas. Executive believes educators are being exploited by this approach and treated as if they are of secondary importance to others in the community. Nambanji AEU sub-branch motion states that we recognise that we are engaged in a process to stop the exponential expansion of global pandemic that is a threat to life. This about people's lives and deaths. 
We want schools to be closed as a first step in the process of a total public lockdown in the ACT. We urge that AEU ACT demand that Education Directorate and ACT government close all public schools with the exception of planned and negotiated locations with the AEU ACT to provide for children of essential workers when required. As an officer of the AEU, the Australian Education Union in Canberra, you, you've uh, had a, a meeting and uh, your members have been discussing the way uh, teachers are being told that they need to stay at school, even though everyone else has been told to stay at home. Can you tell us about the reactions of teachers to this? I suppose you could say it was, the reactions were subterranean. No one was openly saying, oh, this is outrageous or appalling, but... This week, Monday, I sent a motion into our office, because I'm the sub-branch president, each school is a sub-branch of the union, of our local ACT branch. So I sent a motion in saying that we weren't happy about um, the messaging, we weren't happy about not being able to have a safe workplace, and we weren't happy that we weren't being spoken to or and the messages were very mixed like keep your distance but well it was like I said in the motion it was like the unwritten caveat is except for schools like every health measure that was being taken within the public counted but we couldn't practice that in schools and we're saying schools are the exception why are schools the exception you know we're grandparents parents as well as being teachers too so we have had to think about our own families and our own situation. Then by Wednesday, our, the secretary of our union had been negotiating with our directorate, or the department, as you call them elsewhere. And by Wednesday, about two o'clock, we had an executive meeting of the union branch, and we passed a motion that had come that we had come to agreement with with the department that we could have the right to work from home and if we asked to work from home the request couldn't be denied so consequently everyone felt the pressure was off everyone was very happy it was met with the so there was a really um an untapped feeling of frustration i think because it was a hundred percent support for the motion both our school motions and for the, the au act branch motion so uh there was a strong feeling that people teachers at schools were being used as babysitting is that right? Well, the fact is that since Monday, we've we've had a trickle of students in anywhere anywhere between four and thirteen. So we've had pretty much no students here anyway. I mean, the motion we passed at our school was that schools should be closed as a first step to a process of locking down the ACT, but they haven't quite got there yet. I think we're going to follow the New South Wales pattern, but. Teachers had a lot to do in terms of just winding up their classrooms and preparing materials for the you know the likely scenario of online learning over term two and maybe longer. So there's a lot to do. So teachers have been coming in and out, um, just doing bits and pieces. But we can't be compelled to be here. Your uh, online learning, what, how's that? How are you going about that? In the high school, it's a little different. The high school teachers are already doing it. They're already teaching online from home or even from here at the school. 
what it looks like in the primary school, I'm not too sure. We got we're using um, seesaw and story time and things like that, which are used to communicate with parents anyway. So those things are in place, and we're putting materials up and links up and um, suggestions for what should be done at home. And so we're messaging and phoning parents regularly. Yeah. Were you happy with the way the union was able to uh, negotiate? Oh, yes. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, in effect, if you had a school with 100% union membership, you'd effectively close the school anyway. So the only people who aren't, who aren't allowed to go home are those non-union members. But it's never explicitly, explicitly stated as that. All it said was that AU members are allowed to request to go home. I mean, it really pays to be part of your union. Yeah. So we've had a, a great increase in union membership. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the resistors a lot of the resistors have joined. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the students won't be very uh won't have a lot of equipment at home. They won't be well off. No, that's especially in um in our area, like the digital digital divide is very much felt. Although in the ACT so we had a lot of classroom computers which have let go home ah. and tried to fill some gaps that way. A lot of students just have a phone. There's no actual internet at home as such. So we are providing, um, how we manage it, I'm not too sure, but we're doing hard copy materials as well. So parents have come in and got books and bits and pieces and we're giving them some work to do at home in hard copy as well as the as the digital but it's a very good outcome it was a very it was a great collective activity it's really galvanized members and i think an exceptional outcome given that you know the prime minister was telling us one thing and we're actually saying no it wasn't acceptable so we're very pleased with the strength of our union i would suspect getting close to 90% density in the ACT in terms of covering our profession in the public education system. We're batting well above the average in that sense. Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855am and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. I spoke with Matt Kunkel from the Migrant Workers Centre to find out what are the big issues for visa holders, sponsored workers and other overseas workers here in Australia at the moment. Have the new announcement helped them weather the storm of COVID-19? Thanks for talking to me, Matt. And can you give me some idea about the uh, issues that are the biggest uh, that you're dealing with at the moment at the Migrant Workers Centre? Well, I need to... Focus really just on one thing at the moment, which is the fact that the Scott Morrison government has abandoned 1.1 million temporary visa holders to um, the threat of disease, debt and destitution. The, uh, they're excluded from this wage subsidy or the job keeper allowance, as it's being called, um, and without any way to get home uh, because the borders are shut. Um, without flights home, without the money to get home, even if they can get through the borders of their home country, without a job, um, they're you know they've got no money to pay their rent or to put food on the table. That's the sole thing that we're focused on at the moment. It's really fascinating because uh, this government 
has really shown its uh, true colours. I mean, in a sense that one, they've given this, you know, a trendy little name to this uh, payment, the uh, job keeper allowance. They've put the money directly into the hands of the employer, and uh, they've completely forgotten that there's this huge. Uh, underground system of employment in this country, which they've encouraged. Oh, without a doubt, Annie. I mean, this is a government that's acting true to its form. Um, they are excluding large groups of workers from this um, this wage subsidy. It's not universal. And unless we're going to have a subsidy that covers all workers, regardless of their visa status or how long they've been with their employer, or indeed the way in which they are engaged with their employer then we're going to see people left behind. And we just, you know, in, in the in the case of the temporary migrant workers, that's 1.1 million people. Like, just take a, like a moment to think about just how many people that is. People, each one of those people has a family. Each of them has rent to pay or a mortgage to pay. Um, and this government is saying nothing. You get nothing from us. Um, like, what does that look like? Like, what does that look like to people when there's that many people that have absolutely no hope of paying their bills? Um, and if they can't pay their bills and they can't pay their medical insurance, they've got no access to the healthcare system either. So even at this time when everyone's talking about we're all in this together, um, the government continues its um, its racist program of, you know, Australians first and, you know, white white jobs or white, you know, white people, white Australia. It's... Um, it's incredible. I mean, I mean, it's not incredible. It's exactly what we would expect from this government. But at this extraordinary time um, to flip these people from any type of government assistance is, um, I, I just, I don't have the word for it, Annie. I just, I'm, I'm so white hot with rage. What, what are you trying to? What are you doing? What, what is the uh, the centre put into place to try and put pressure on the government? So we're doing a couple of things, Annie. Um, I mean, obviously, our traditional methods of organising have been a little bit stymied because we can't go out and talk to people face to face. And, you know, we're doing a lot of this stuff online. But um, we're trying to get migrant workers together to, you know, <clears throat> put pressure and tell their stories to, to members of parliament, um, because at the moment, it's quite difficult to organise industrially um, through the centre. So, um we unfortunately we're back into that kind of that habit of you know putting pressure on politicians um, and calling on them to do the right thing. But um, we're also, I guess, mobilising support through faith groups and um, and other organi- other civil society organisations who um, you know m- might not be necessarily our our normal allies, um, but all have a role to play in making sure that no work is left behind. What stories are you hearing? Oh. Geez, Annie. Um, we put out a survey where um, we got inundated with calls. Basically, when as soon as the cafes and hotels were shut, we got inundated with calls, um, and we put out a survey to try and connect people to the different types of support that's available. Um, and we've had almost two thousand people um, do that survey, and we've linked them to different types of support, either industrial or food aid or things like that. But um, we had a, I mean, just yesterday, a case came in. Um, some workers were both living and working at a, a pub, the pub shut. Um, the, the boss put them out on the street the following day, no food, no pay, 
uh, haven't been paid their last pay packet, um, and they're camping on the beach. And I mean, they're not really camping. I guess they're just sleeping on the beach um, with no way to get home, no money, no hope. Um, and it's the like that's not an extreme story. There are people who um, we got one person sending a message in, literally like wanting money to pay to to buy milk for her baby. Like this is the kind of destitution that this 1.1 million people who have been completely left out of this system are facing. And it's just not, it's just not acceptable. It's just, it's a, it's an absolute travesty that this government would think that it's okay to do something like this to these people. I'm really interested too, in the fact that not only are they uh, doing this to these people, but some of the parts of the business class have actually believed that this is a great opportunity to, wage freeze to uh, get rid of uh, wages and conditions across the board and the government's rhetoric is that we're all in it together Uh, also you have the police going around the place telling people they're not allowed to stop in places but actually Mm -hmm. they themselves are walking around quite close to each other acting as if uh, they themselves are protected magically from the virus it's a real attitude thing, isn't it? Well, look, on the police, Annie, I mean, I've I've seen something similar to you where they are. I mean, they could demonstrate the types of behaviour that they're expecting of the rest of us and, you know, do a little bit of social distancing. Um, but you might have seen in the news this week that police have been added to the types of people who can be tested for this virus. So um, there are a lot of people out there who are sick, who are exhibiting symptoms that can't get tested. Um, but, you know, police have been added to that list. And, you know, in some cases, you know, it's important to have front all frontline, particularly healthcare workers in, in that system. But um, everybody, I mean, absolutely everybody's got their role to do to stop the spread of this virus. And, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is that what we're hearing is Team Australia, Team Australia. Everyone's on Team Australia up in Canberra. But um, the, the biggest issue for us is that this government has left out 1.1 million people who are on Team Australia. <laughs> they're here, they're building their lives here, they're in our communities, they're paying taxes to support a social safety net that they now desperately need access to, um, but they're being explicitly denied any support from this government. The, um, the, key, the key thing here, Annie, is that the system that the government set up um, is, in fact, not a, it's not the worst system that they could have come up with, um, it would allow it to, to include everybody. So at the moment, it doesn't include casuals. Uh, this is Friday um, on Friday what we're talking, but it doesn't include casuals who have been with their employer for less than 12 months. Um, and it doesn't include anyone on a temporary visa except for those sort of 650,000 Kiwis who have been here for, you know, 10 years or more. Um, but <laughs> there's no reason it can't. It's coming through the tax office. All of the people that are... Um, that are being excluded from this um, can have money come directly to them through the tax office as well. Um, And the real challenge here is to make sure the government doesn't leave anyone behind and expands it out to cover absolutely every worker. Um, There's no reason for it other than um, the government's deliberate intentions to split the working class and to to pit one group of workers against another. So are you saying that if they weren't putting the money through employers, 
and we're putting it through uh, government uh, systems uh, related to the ATO, that this wouldn't need to happen? Uh, I guess what I'm saying, Annie, is that if I'm a mig- if I was a migrant worker on a temporary visa, so let's say that I'm on a temporary skill shortage visa, I'm a cook in a in a restaurant, and I um, I've been working there for five years um, at, or four years as a as a cook in a in a restaurant, and, I, and next to me works someone who's also um, a, a permanent worker but is an Australian citizen. We're both getting paid the same amount of money, hopefully, um, and we are both paying into the social safety net. Um, now the government's going to make employers work out which of their employees is eligible and which it, which isn't. And in that circumstance, those two workers that are standing side by side, one, the Australian citizen, gets this $750 a week. The other, the temporary migrant worker, nothing. Um, and not just nothing, but no access to health care, um, no reason for the boss to keep them on. Um, and that migrant worker might have absolutely no way of getting home. So what are they meant to do? Just starve in the streets? It's just, it's, it's, it's inconscionable. The other thing is, you said that you're trying to get uh, some action from parliamentarians, but with the shutdown of parliament, how successful or how influential can they be? Uh, I guess it comes down to that age-old question that is, spoken about in the left is like how how useful is it to rely on politicians to make change um but i mean in, in these circumstances the labor party in particular needs to really step up and and take a stand for all workers and it needs to show it needs to show that it's interested in supporting absolutely everyone here um they've got an opportunity um to make to make a stand and to to push for amendments to this bill um because the only thing that it would they would need to do um, is get the government to provide more money. Uh, and I think that the human cost of excluding 1.1 million people from our social safety net um, is, is much greater and, is, and would just sort of... I just, I just don't think people are ready to, to see that happen and I, and I just don't think that the government should, um, should, should call that human cost on at the, um, at the expense of just paying a little bit more money to make sure everyone's looked after. Well, the point is, too, that it's actually dangerous. It's, it's dangerous for the people that are concerned, but it's also dangerous in a pandemic. Oh, I, that shocks me, too, Annie. I mean, what does the government think these people are going to do? Um, they have to work, because uh, if they aren't working somewhere, they're not getting any kind of money. They've got no access. Many migrant workers, many temporary migrant workers are already in insecure employment. Um, many of them are already working in kind of off the books arrangements so that they can get they can get by um they're going to have to keep turning up and the only types of jobs um that are out there are those you know public facing jobs at the moment that are dangerous and are um you know carry some risk of of getting sick so when these workers do get sick because they're out there working in the community um well what are they going to do about it i mean they can't afford their medical insurance and they can't go to the or well, except in Victoria, where the state government's made changes to allow everyone to get healthcare, no matter what their visa status or their bank balance, around the rest of the country, there's no similar moves being made. So what do they expect them, again, what do they expect them to do? Starve, get sick and die on the streets? I mean, no one, no one's going to lie down like that. There's going to be, there has to be some kind of challenge to this, 
um, to this regime. It's interesting that the uh, it's been noticeable that uh, the federal government has been less than uh, capable uh, compared to the state governments. Oh, look, you know, people call him Scotty from marketing, but, I mean, the, the challenge here is that he, this is something that he can't smirk his way through. This is actually a serious issue that affects every single person in this country, and it's the time for xenophobia, the time for racism, the time for the politics of division is over. He actually needs to do his bloody job and unite this country, unite every single person that's here so that we can get through this together and so that everybody comes out of it at the other end um, with a bit of dignity and and with their lives intact. I mean, this is not the time for him to keep business as usual going. It's time for him to get down and actually communicate some serious messages about we are all in this together and that we includes absolutely every worker because... I mean, here at the Migrant Workers Centre in the union movement, we're arguing that this wage subsidy should be for absolutely everyone. That's a small start. I mean, that's only the, the start of this campaign. We're also talking about amnesty for undocumented workers. We're talking about extending the healthcare system to all people who pay into it and all people who need it in this country. Um, and we're also talking about making sure that during this period, when people don't have jobs, that they don't have to pay rent. Um, and, and not just don't have to pay rent until this something happens in the future, but that they don't pay rent at all, that rent payments stop accruing and that they can actually get some breathing space to look after their health at this time. Hi, this is Liz Stringer, and you're listening to The Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when we have to admire people who can cheer us up and keep smiling and happy through these difficult times. Great, caring retail employers like, say, Solomon the Lou and Jerry Harvey, your money and double mine, ever smiling, although to say ever happy is not quite the case, because as they smile happily, they are always forced to call for some change or other that will put more money into their pockets, presumably so they can continue to be caring employers. Solly, for example, complaining long and loud that shopping centre landlords are ripping him off exorbitant rents and we can but imagine how happy Solly's sensitivities would be abraded by someone ripping someone off in the love thy neighbour world of big business. So Solly took matters into his own hands and announced he was no longer going to pay rent at all. Oh, how the undeserving poor must wish they could unilaterally declare they have no intention of paying rent and get stuff's landlord. You can't do anything about it. As Solly closed his stores for at least three weeks and sadly let go his staff. See, Solly's banking on being too big to be evicted. And anyway, the government has now finally decided people perhaps shouldn't be evicted. But the good news from our point of view is when Solly's stores finally open again, we can all take whatever we want although I'm not sure there'd be anything in his stores I would want, but whatever we want, and announce we have no intention of paying. Solly would understand, and we can be sure he wouldn't pursue his business creditors if they decided they weren't going to pay him. Now, I raise this because as the government empties the public purse into the coppers of the super-efficient private sector, we commented last week it had struck a perfect balance between handouts to the deserving non-poor and handouts to the undeserving poor. The then latest package providing a mere $163 billion to the deserving non and a massive $24 billion to the undeserving, a tiny 87.5% to the filthy rich or, so, sorry, deserving non, and a super 
generous 12.5% to the undeserving. Well, we were wrong. The perfect balance was not the perfect balance. This week's 130 billion emptying of the public purse struck the perfect balance. 100% to the deserving non-poor and 0% to the undeserving destitute. What could be fairer? Okay, okay, the government and the caring employers claim it is to pay workers, that is, pay the workers' wages, the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all boast, is their prime raison d'etre. 1500 a fortnight to each of their workers. Under a, gee, what a surprise headline, Big Business Welcomes Wage Relief, in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, there was a picture of the ever-happy, happy, smiling Solly, the opening part telling us Solly has welcomed the government's new fortnightly $1,500 wage subsidy after standing down 9,000 staff. We applaud the announcement by the big supremo and the economic guru. Solly was happy, 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 as well he might be, announcing proudly he was now prepared to pay his sadly let go workers a generous $1,500 a fortnight. Are you pay? This is not a time to nitpick over incidentals. Great corporate figures, including the Business Profits Council's Jennifer Worcester Cost Workers, all applauded the initiative, so it's clearly the correct decision. Jennifer declaring the government has made the right decision to work through the systems we already have in place to get assistance where it is needed. By we have in place, I think she means the government, but as Sully said, let's not nitpick. Uh, where it is, where it, is uh, it is needed, uh, Jennifer? Certainly, shareholders are bleeding. Hopefully, when the COVID crisis is over and the government hands the economy back to the caring business class, it would make sense for the government to keep offering a little assistance like paying the wages of all true blue Aussie workers. As Solly and Jennifer and Jerry et al. chorused, that would free up capital so they could employ lots more workers the government can pay. In fact, They've called a very sensible move for this year's minimum wage hearing to be aborted. A Canberra academic declaring it would be irresponsible to increase the minimum wage. Yet the bloody ACTU wants a 4% increase. Don't they know we've got a crisis on our hands? Typical evil union bosses. Thank goodness we've got the responsible corporate leaders advising the government on what to give them. Melbourne Uni Labor economist Roger Wilkins, whose views we always appreciate, suggests the aftershocks from the virus crisis would justify a wage freeze for the next year and arguably even a wage cut. It might be prudent to lower the cost of labor a little bit. He doesn't want a big wage cut. Presumably he's contacted the Uni Pay Office to recommend what his wage cut will be. Although not sure why the caring employers are worried about a minimum wage rise for the lowest of low paid at all, they won't have to pay it. Last week we quoted Jennifer, business is the glue that keeps communities together and keeps the economy going. And we left her resembling a noodle maker, vainly trying to control the sagging strips of melting glue, treacle-like. And this week she's covered in the stuff and looking for somewhere to wipe the sticky mess off her hands, stopping herself just before she rubbed them on her not inexpensive clothes. And the fair work Trubler was, he no longer worked choices just looks like it con mission, has franked the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs contention that it exists simply to increase wages we can't afford. 
although as of this week, caring employers can afford. But the Con Mission, in a magnanimous gift to workers, said awards should include a 14-day quarantine period if necessary, and here's the really generous bit, without pay. Or if they want to be paid, take their annual leave at half pay. So they'll be half paid. And the caring employer will only put the other half of their holiday pay. Any wonder the people who matter so respect and quote the deep thoughts of the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs and its spokesperson, John Rustcan. Fair work, true blue Aussie no longer is getting out of control. Like only slowly getting rid of crippling penalty rates for workers allegedly working unsocial hours. I say allegedly because this Armadale upper class Melbourne suburb Armadale, not the New South Wales version, complaining about meeting the rent as he's relying only on takeaways. Large drop in takings compared, he said, to $1,100 a day on weekdays and $2,500 a day at weekends. And yet the bloody evil unions claim on those days, much more than double the other day's days, the workers should get penalty rates for working unsocial hours, crippling their poor caring employer, when those figures speak for themselves. The weekend is the social hours. That's when people want to go out and enjoy themselves. So how can the unions and lazy, avaricious workers possibly claim they are unsocial hours? They're the most social hours of all. Yet another example of worker greed. At least there's light at the end of the tunnel as the commander-in-chief leading the world in this war, best war ever, ever, against COVID-19 assured us we'll all be in church on Easter Sunday thanking the dear baby Jesus for taking away the virus. Uh, which also assumes he gave it to us in the first place, but that's another question. A beautiful sight, and Donald, that's the commander-in-chief, just loves church on Easter Sunday. Well, he's a man of God, although perhaps he thinks God should minister to him. Anyway, with his usual consistency and dedication to truth and integrity, Donald also said it would be a positive if only one million U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world citizens died of, presumably None of them him. So a million US of people have to die this week and those left head for church. Don't know why Donald reminded me of this, but this could have been an April Fool's joke, but it's not. It was released several days earlier. Icaria Warriutia. That's it, Icaria Warriutia. Sure, we're all aware of it, but just in case you were not, Icaria Warriutia was, quote, a worm-like creature smaller than a rice grain that burrowed on the seafloor 555 million years ago, eating dead organic matter. So? Well, the Smithsonian Institute says it's the earliest known member of bilaterians, organisms with symmetrical sides, a front and back, with a mouth and anus, and a gut connecting them. Therefore, our oldest known evolutionary forerunner. The advent of such a body in the, in the Ediacaran period paved the way for advanced bilaterans like fish, insects, birds, reptiles and mammals, the Institute said. Yeah, yeah I can buy that, a worm-like ancestor, because that could easily explain a few of our favourite corporate leaders and politicians, particularly the anus bit. Finally... We're all taking all precautions at the moment, listener, or I hope we are, the unfortunate need to change our lifestyles, our social lives, but I'd advise you to follow my example here. I've decided, in fact, 
I've already cancelled the arrangements. Reluctantly, I have no intention of spending the northern winter at Aspen this year. And I've decided to refuse, in the nicest and most courteous manner, all invitations to cocktail parties, those pleasant little soirees we all enjoy at Geelong Grammar. It's a big sacrifice, but this is a time for big sacrifices. I think I'll mostly miss the in-depth conversations and the shared empathy for working people, on which the working people bit, as a person with a proclivity for sloth and procrastination, I'm feeling particularly patriotic doing my duty and following the government orders to do absolutely nothing. I'm working my guts out on it. Good morning. We finished the program with a chat with Emma Torson from the think tank Per Capita. She sent out a reflective email while at home during COVID-19, which contains some sobering but hopeful words. So I called her up for a chat. We live in a society now that for years, for decades, has seen the public sector um, reduced, run down in favour of the market. And that's led to things like a hollowing out of our social security system, um, reductions in our spending on health uh, and hospitals, uh, and, and, and also a very explicit way of undermining collectivism um, with a preference for individualism. And so at a time like this, when really the only um, way of responding, as we've seen, to, to a shock uh, to economy and society as huge as this, is through collective action led by government, uh, we're not as well positioned to, to do that as we would have been had we not experienced years of a very uh, small government mindset running out running our world yeah it's been decades long as you've said a project to <laughs> let markets dictate our way of life yes that's right you know i'm, I'm not anti-market entirely i think you know that, that free trade and markets have lifted huge chunks of the world out of real grinding poverty um but an unregulated market which is what we've we've been you know pursuing for the last 30 or 40 years this idea that there's no role for government and governments should get out of the way and just let the market rip is actually you know that's anathema to a good life for most people we need government regulation we need regulation of the market in the collective interests of people and humanity and of the planet um you know we've i mean this is what I was stumbling to say earlier on perhaps there is some link between our our environmental and ecological record and the rise and spread of this virus. But the broader point really is that um, we have undermined that sense that people can come together in a crisis and work together to get through it. And so we're seeing, particularly in Australia now, a government response that I think shows a lot of cognitive dissonance. They, uh, we have a government that is probably the most aggressively small government ideologically um, that I've seen in Australia, uh, more so than the previous Liberal um, administration under under John Howard. And so there is a, a great deal of cognitive dissonance on show when they're having to uh, pump billions of taxpayer money, as they would call it, um, government money, as I would call it, into the economy to keep things going and take responsibility for our collective actions, that they're having to say, well, no, you cannot do this and you cannot do that, and imposing rules on people does not come naturally to this worldview. Um, it must be a tough job. It would be a tough job for anyone in government. But I think the fact that, you know, neoliberalism, if you, if you want to call it that, market um, economics um, has held sway for so long means that we don't have the systems in place that we need. So the best example of that, Annie, was the queues at Centrelink and the Centrelink website crashing on day one. This, this government in particular 
has really run down investment in staff, in services for social security system in our country. Um, they've turned it into a system that punishes people for not being in jobs that aren't there and suddenly they're overwhelmed with people that have never perhaps experienced having to rely on Centrelink before and they're being exposed to just how badly we've degraded those systems and degraded the public sphere. I had a uh, almost a visceral uh, reaction to a statement that you put into your piece. The era of small mm. government is over. Neoliberalism has no answers, holds no answers to the challenges we face. And those examples are a perfect example, as you said. Uh, but what we're really talking about here is actually a, a world view. This world view mm. will not cut it under extreme situations out of our control. No, that's right. And I think, I think a lot of us have known that we've seen society degraded and the things that those of us you know, that are social democrats or um, socialists or whatever position on the left, the things that we hold dear about society, we've seen them be attacked and degraded. And we've known that that's not the ideal way for the majority of humans to live a good and decent life. It's no way to share prosperity and to support the most vulnerable and to ensure that everyone gets the same opportunity in life. It's very much a, a hierarchical competitive society that I've never been comfortable with. But at a time of crisis, this becomes so glaringly obvious that there are no tools in the neoliberal toolbox to respond to a crisis that affects all of us immediately, critically, and puts extreme pressure on the system that we've allowed to develop. So no, there are no answers in, in market economics for this kind of crisis. Only uh, collective social democratic government uh, response will be able to get us through it. And, and so we're seeing around the world, you know, in the UK, uh, perhaps even more so than here, a conservative government who won an election only a few months ago opposing a very strongly collectivist program or platform by the Labor opposition over there, suddenly spending money on the National Health Service where they've been ripping money out for years and wage subsidies almost immediately. I think they're even quicker to develop a kind of Keynesian response than our Prime Minister and government here have been doing through having to be dragged to it through gritted teeth. It is the era of small government has to be over at a time like this. There is no capacity for a tribalised or... Um, siloed private sector, a group of businesses, um, a number of different business interests, all of whom have as their natural goal in life their own self-interest. Uh, there's no capacity there for the market to come together and respond to something like this. Only a government elected by the people to work for the people can do that. And unfortunately, I think there was a, a fantastic piece in The Guardian UK a week or so ago by George Monbiot, who said the wrong people are in charge during this crisis in the Western world. And he talked explicitly about the UK, the US and Australia, that we have in charge at a time when we've never met government, big government more, um, men that don't believe in government and don't believe in the capacity of government to help. So look, I, I don't want to, to talk down where government's doing. And I think it's good to see that um, they're being as as cooperative as possible, both with the state and to some extent with the opposition, although I think that um, the opposition leaders should be included in that national cabinet. Um, but I think you know, the longer term, as we come out the other side of this, 
we cannot return to a business as usual neoliberal agenda. We have to engage in the work of reconstructing society and that's only ever been able to be done, um, whether it be uh, or throughout history. Um, in the 19th century, um, uh, responses to the Industrial Revolution had to be legislated in order for people not to be exploited post-World War One, post the Great Depression, World War Two, these responses that ensured that no one was left behind and that vested interests didn't exploit crises for their own, take even more advantage for themselves. The only way to ensure that it's done uh, cooperatively and fairly and in a sustainable way is for government to lead that program. So, yes, I, in my piece, did explicitly hark back to the um, Curtin and Chifley post-war reconstruction program, which I... Uh, at per capita, we were already looking at that as a way of responding to the, you know, the challenges of climate change. This crisis and and the need for a really, what would be a really deep depression, the need to respond to that um, and to rebuild society means that we need to take a lot of lessons from what we've done in the past, but also create new solutions that uh, build on collective action in the future. One of the biggest worries that uh, it appears to me is that... Uh the uh, neoliberal approach has been bedded in since, uh, it, I mean, it started in the 1950s and it worked its way through, worming its way through all the major Western powers right up to the present day. Running alongside the actual taking of assets and the rest has been the propaganda process that's bedded in the idea that it's impossible to exist without it. So educational processes and uh, blatant advertising. So it takes yeah. something as significant as this to shock people out of the realisation that the, the system doesn't work. Now, your your group and many others have been, you know, thinking people have been uh, saying for a long time and offering solutions saying that uh, it's going to end in tears. Uh, one of the things that's happened is that the uh, we're beholden, as you put it, beholden to multinationals who spend a lot of time uh, routinely price gouging, wage theft, asset stripping, and it is actually uh, a system that is anti-human as well as anti-nature. But people have mm -hmm. felt that it's impossible to make the world in a different way now, I know that you offer solutions and I know other people offer solutions and we'll get to those solutions in a minute and they're very practical solutions. But how, as George Monbiot says, the wrong people are in power and then they have people behind them who are, I'd say, uh, puppet masters. How is it possible for the majority of people to have an effect, uh, even though it's a wise path that you offer yeah look it's the propaganda war you're talking about i think and um you're right you know the the right uh if you want to call them that the, the proponents of, of neoliberalism or market economics the very coordinated campaign from the 1940s 50s onwards um through the montpelier and society um uh to develop um writing and thinking and, and invade, you know, set up think tanks and um, the Chicago School of Economics and things like that that really propagated this idea and won the public argument about it so that when the oil shocks hit in the early 70s, they were there poised with their solution to overturn, you know, decades of, of um, 
a mixed economy sort of Keynesian approach um, to regulating the market with neoliberalism, and they did so very successfully. And arguably, and I've said this many times, the left has been hopeless at countering this. Um, we are too busy arguing amongst ourselves about minor minor degrees of radicalism or whether or not who's really progressive and all kinds of um, issues that we obsess ourselves with, while the right is just united behind uh, wealth extraction and enabling it for one another. Um, and I don't for a second think the left should just you know, stop having those discussions and, and um, behave in a monolithic way to seize power because we've seen what, that, what happens um, when, when that occurs um, throughout history as well. It is a challenge, particularly because of the ownership of um, traditional media and mass media by, I think, I think that's probably who you were obliquely referring to as the puppet masters, Annie. Well... And maybe even people who have the power and have the money. Maybe people even behind that. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's it's big money, um, and big money is own interest is to make more big money, and the big money brings big power. But there are more of us than there are of them, um, and it has. And in the past, if you look at what happened after the depression and after World War Two, um, people voted according to their realization that. Uh, their interests weren't being looked after. They were awoken by those crises. And this this may be a silver lining of a crisis like this, um, that people will see the broken nature of the system, that you know a million people will be forced onto the dole that have never been there before and realise how brutal we make life for people in those circumstances and that everyone is only you know a, a, a piece of unlucky... Um, fortune away from finding themselves in a similar situation. It breaks down that us and them narrative. It's going to be incumbent on those of us that have long um, held the view that this was, you know, that we needed to change our way of life and have a have a different approach to our economy and our society. It's incumbent on us to talk to people through this and to bang the drum as loudly as possible. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult for us to get airtime for, for our views. It always has been. Um, we, we need to try harder. We now have, I think, um, to some extent, there's a it's a double-edged sword, the benefits and the dangers of social media. Um, social media allows people to speak directly to one another without those gatekeepers of the media, but it's also very tribalised and weaponised at the moment. Um, particularly platforms like Facebook, where a lot of misinformation can spread as well. Um, and then we have people like Clive Palmer just buying advertising mm-hmm. to push um, misinformation into the market. So, look, I, I don't underestimate the size of the challenge, but the, when people ask me, well, how are you going to do that? That no one, you know, How are you going to overcome this massive monolithic beast? The alternative is not to try, and I don't see that as an alternative. So... I think we we must continue to push the message, but we must also respect people while we're doing it and not sneer at people who perhaps vote against their own self-interest because they feel insecure or threatened or, uh, as you know, should have been um, convinced by years of propaganda that there's no other way but the market and to sneer at government and to hate government. Um, it's not just about big government either. It's not all about a top-down approach. It's about those communities being empowered to work together. I, I think a part of what we need to see on the other side is um, a return to a lot of the kind of cooperatives and mutuals that emerged in the early and mid 20th century in response to the um, depression and collapse on businesses and so on. Um, so there are multiple policy leaders, but it's really about um, reaching out to people when they're hit by a crisis like this 
and demonstrating really effectively um, through words and action that there are collective responses that can work for them. I think most people, when you actually ask them, do you, you know, do you only care about yourself and your family or do you care about your community and your neighbour? But the vast majority will say they care about their community and their neighbour. Um, so the instinct in humans is there for us to build on. Um, but yes, the other side is very well resourced and, and, and has a huge array of weapons that we often don't have. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't take up the fight. Because, you know, that thing about um, commodifying everything, even love, is quite a tricky mm. thing, isn't it? Um, let's go to uh, something that's really interesting to me, which is the, the it's almost, a, it is the 75th year of uh, uh, anniversary of um, the John Curtin um, yes. uh, paper. Uh, the white, yeah. yeah, white paper on full employment. Yeah, 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 and this is something that came out after the Depression, uh, from the ashes of the Depression, mm -hmm. and uh, per capita was going to do a whole series of uh, events which may be delayed. Yes. But um, can you talk about that? Because this is very interesting. Yes, so we, we've been working for almost a year now, certainly really more than a year, but in, really intensely since the outcome of the last election on a program uh, of full employment for, for Australia's low-carbon future. Um, we saw the challenge of dealing with climate change and the, the sense that people were feeling extremely dislocated by that challenge at Chatwell threatened by the challenge um, because they already have insecure work, um, low-paid work, uh, the underemployment rate is, is astronomically high in Australia. Too many people feel very threatened and insecure already. And so we saw at the election that um, a lot of people voted because they were more concerned with where their job was, how, how they were going to have a job in five years, how their kids were going to buy a house, than they did for climate change. And a lot of people on the left were very angry about that and... Um, particularly in regional Queensland and regional Australia. Um, whereas I don't think I, I have a lot of sympathy and a lot of empathy for that position, which is if you can't think about how you're going to put a roof over your head, um, it's very hard to care about the bigger picture. So it came to me down, down to one thing for me, which was actually there are huge opportunities in moving to a low carbon economy. Uh, particularly in a country with Australia that's so resource-heavy in, in natural uh, renewable sources of energy. Um, and so we needed to talk about how we can build a new economy that puts people at the heart of it. And the way of doing that um, is to talk about full employment again, uh, to change our macroeconomic settings to target employment rather than inflation, or, uh, inf you know, while recognising inflation as an issue, but to target genuinely full employment um, and to engage in a lot of the, it came to me very quickly, that a lot of the reconstruction efforts that were um, undertaken by the Curtin and then Chifley governments under the guidance of um, Nugget Coombs uh, in Treasury and others, a lot of those initiatives were things we need today. So things like um, how do we support agriculture to get back on its feet, um, in our case, in 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 the face of changing climate and drought, how do we support food production? They also looked at how what the manufacturing sector needed and what manufacturing industries needed to be supported and invested in. And that's something we need urgently to do now um, because we have lost our manufacturing capacity over the last few decades and we have a very 
Um, our industrial base is very reliant on digging things out of the ground and selling them off overseas. Um, we are also, uh, we have a, a very, um, the complexity in our industrial base is, is really not there. Um, so we need to, to look at that. We also need to look at a significant investment in public housing, um, which was something that they, they did coming up with the public housing. Commission in the 1940s. They also established the Commonwealth Employment Service. Our employment services system uh, is really not fit for purpose and not working. Um, and so all of, a lot of the measures that they were talking about um, and uh, that they were that were implicit and, and critical parts of their of that white paper and of the reconstruction that was um, put together by Curtin and Chifley are things that we need to do now. Obviously, in a very different way. We. This is not about um, rebuilding after the war. This is not, you know, about returned servicemen going back to work. This is about rebuilding uh, our economy and our society to be more economically and ecologically sustainable. Um, we, it would have, it would meet the twin challenges of climate change and inequality. But now, obviously, this has become more acute because after this. Um, pandemic and the economic crisis that comes with it, <clears throat> the rebuilding and reconstruction effort is, will be more necessary than ever. So um, we were planning um, an event at Old Parliament House to mark the 75th anniversary, which will have to be postponed. But the other work we're doing, the, um, our own policy work, um, the release of our own uh, white paper framework for uh, Australia's future low-carbon economy um, and full employment in that economy, um, a lot of the other policy papers and things we will still release to mark the anniversary and we are hoping to do some online activities as well. But it's really about, um, obviously, we're learning those lessons of the past, not replicating them, <clears throat> but rather using that legacy as an inspiration to develop a program that can invest in Australia's sustainable prosperity and shared prosperity in the future and really build, rebuild a society in which everyone feels they have a stake um, and that they feel um, supported by government to, to develop their own businesses or their own interests, um, to work cooperatively together and to decarbonise the economy in a way that brings sustainable employment and sustainable prosperity for, for the vast majority of Australians. The COVID-19 virus uh, shutdown or stay-at-home, it turned out some interesting uh, points. Uh, a lot of the... Uh, the things that you can rely on as a person in Australia has been the state governments. I know we've been getting rather rambly long uh, dissertations coming from the federal people, but really yes. the anchor, I think, is the states. And the reason why I say that is that each time something is said, the, uh, the Prime Minister has said, oh, well, that's up to the states to decide. It's almost yes. like he's trying yes. to dodge later criticism for make, be, doing something. You know what I mean? I do, I do. And there's, look, it builds on a pattern from the bushfires as well where he was um, pretty quick to throw the New South Wales state government under a bus on both occasions. I think there's a mirror here for the Curtin and Chifley years as well. They, of course, they tried to um, have a referendum to give the federal government significantly more powers, which failed um, in 19, 1944. Um, and so their program itself was limited the nature of federalism. Um, for example, uh, Coombs really wanted to 
uh, have an explicit program to uh, step care for the welfare of Indigenous Australians, which um, he couldn't do until the later referendum in the 60s gave the federal government uh, responsibility for that. But federalism continues to be an issue for us, and I think this is the first time in almost a century we've seen the states really take charge of a lot of decisions that previously they would have left to the federal government. Um, and I think they've been forced to do that because there has been, the federal government's been too slow to move on a lot of things. I personally feel pretty lucky to live in Victoria. I think Dan Andrews is, has responded well to this as he did with the bushfires. He speaks clearly, he speaks plainly, and he moves decisively. And that national cabinet, perhaps not working as well now as it was at the beginning. So the, the need for coordination between federal and state governments is something we have been thinking about strongly as part of our work towards a new um, framework for a, a reconstruction through a low-carbon Australia. In every policy area you look at, there are different intersections between state and federal government responsibilities, and some of them are useful and some of them are restrictive. And so thinking about how we reconstruct is quite a complex issue. It's We're proposing a series of ideas that we hope will be taken up by government yes. and we hope yes. that Treasury and others will, will develop those processes for working through them. We have an open market economy now. We are a trading nation in a globalised world. Um, we have uh, a much more diverse workforce. Really, then it was about getting able-bodied returned service men into work. Now there are um, majority of women are in the workforce. Um, we need to look at the impact on First Nations people and the impact on the land and our ecology. Um, we need to look at programs for people with disabilities being employed. We have a much uh, more culturally diverse nation than we had um, in the 1940s. And so the challenges are, are different. But the underlying principles of that reconstruction effort remain the same, which is that we should be putting the well-being of, of the majority of people at the centre of everything we do, rather than the interests of a few wealthy people um, in a kind of trickle-down economy, rather an economy that builds everyone from the ground up. Um, and I think those principles will serve as well as we seek to, to reconstruct our nation and our world after this crisis. Uh, just as a matter of comment, you realise that the people that uh, have been put in charge of the... Uh, a COVID-19 commission or whatever it is, a former a mining magnate. Uh, they're all big business. All big I business. mean, with the, with the exception, I would say, of Greg Combay, who, of course, is a former head of the ACTU, um, a very capable person. Yeah, he's a very capable person, but he's super... Well, yeah, he's the head of he's the head of the industry super bodies, which are the you know non non profit or profit for members super bodies, and I think it's sensible to have someone from that sector on board because yeah. they represent a huge chunk of cash that can be invested. Um, <clears throat> but no, I share your concerns about that about that commission. Um, <clears throat> not only because of the composition of it, there's no one, for example, from the community sector. There's no no one representing the interests of um, homeless people or pe the people that are unemployed. No one that understands the deep um, scarring that can occur with, with unemployment and generational poverty. Um, but more to the point, it's being implemented at a time when the, when the um, excuse me, <coughs> it's not COVID-19, Annie, it's just a, just a cough. Yeah. Um, anyway, we've got social distancing <laughs> Yes, that's right. Um, but it's not. It's being implemented at a time when the part when the government shut down Parliament yeah. for, for five months. Um, so they've shut down Parliament, um, and now they've appointed a commission of business executives to advise them 
um, on policy. Now, it shows, again, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning, it shows a fundamental lack of belief in government. Yeah. Um, the, the, the inclination there is, is a great one that says, well, I will take advice from my hand-picked mates and decide what's best for you, um, rather than work cooperatively with the opposition and the public servants in Canberra. And, I mean, Parliament sat right through the Depression. It sat right through World War One and World War Two. Uh, and certainly with the technology we have available now, there's no reason that Parliament shouldn't continue to sit. In fact, I would argue that it's critical that Parliament does continue to meet and make these decisions. These are the people we elected to make the decisions for us, not a bunch of business executives um, advising, you know, a handful of Cabinet Ministers who will then uh, rule by decree. So, no, I'm, I've got significant concerns about that. I don't think it's a bad thing to have an advisory group in that and have, you know, bring people together. But that group should involve not just business, but the unions, the community sector, the non-profit sector, um, representatives of, of regional Australia and rural Australia all working together. That's what we need for a genuine reconstruction, not a group of kind of business execs who, who will arguably um, be seeking to return to business as usual as quickly as possible in the, in the, in the pursuit of wealth for themselves and their and their um, capital-holding mates. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. I'll catch you next week. Keep safe and keep listening. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.